You are listening to Mommying While Muslim Podcast, where hosts Uzma and Zeba share their personal stories of mommying in a post-9-11 world. This podcast is designed with the Muslim American mom in mind, so grab a cup of coffee and pull up to their table. Assalamualaikum, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Mommying While Muslim Podcast. This is Uzma Jaffrey. And this is Zeba Hassan, and I'm so sad that we're recording remotely now again, considering we got to see each other. That was fun. Why don't you um, fill in the audience about that? So last week, Usman and I got to speak at the podcasting conference in Nashville, Tennessee. I've been in so many different time zones and locations. I had to think about it for a hot second. So we were able to see each other IRL, which was just so super fun. Um, And we had the opportunity to learn so much about what we're going to be doing. So I am excited about some of these cool changes we're going to be implementing. Though I have heard from Usma, we are only going to be allowed three. I might stick another one or two in there. That is up to interpretation, but we will we will go from there. But it was it was an amazing opportunity um, to learn and grow our craft um, a little bit because we you know we take this very seriously. We had the opportunity to speak about using podcasting as a platform to do good in the world. I was terrible because I was like a deer in headlights, but Usma did such an amazing job, and this is why we partner with each other. Because we bring out the best of each other, and we actually had the opportunity to record um, a couple of episodes in an actual like podcast recording booth. Which you know, I'm going to let Usma talk a little bit about where you can find those episodes um, because we're going to be starting a really, really cool thing. Um, and you know, I'm going to give it back to Usma because her week started off. A little shaky and so why don't you tell the audience why that is the case what happened post um, conference for you post conference yeah so Zeba is one of those spectacular people who even though she's changed time zones like seven times in the last three weeks she unpacks and gets organized I'm a great every packer. single time every single time I'm a great packer. Like I am the most efficient packer. Yes. Sometimes I overpack like I did in Nashville, but Mm -hmm. um, I'm not missing anything and everything is very well organized. However, it can take me months. It has even taken me a year to unpack like a little carry on suitcase before. And it's great because, you know, I usually, the master bedroom is big, so I have it tossed somewhere and it usually is out of my way and I ignore it. And everybody who notices that it's there, this time I got up in the middle of the night to go do something in the AC and it was dark pitch black and I tripped over the dang open suitcase and broke two toes dislocated oh one my God. and broke it and broke the one right next to it. I've never had such a bad toe injury my husband's like ah just tape it up and get back into bed I'm like I need to get this fixed the bones are not <laughs> they're not supposed to do that <laughs> they're crooked and they're shaping a yes. B that's instead of running straight my bone is dipping and going back up that's not the way the joint is supposed to move so it was terrible I'm a horrible patient and um, I cried and I swore a lot that night but yeah now I'm in in flip-flops but 
Um, part of what we're really excited about is, you know, offering some more special recordings because, you know, the fact is while we're for convenience sake and for efficiency sake workflow, we're doing some batch recordings um, just so that we can get our work done and have some work-life balance, whatever that, you know, mythological creature is. Uh, we would like to provide more content because you guys are getting great about letting us know what you want to hear and asking really good questions that are forcing us to do some good research. But, you know, the schedule is what the schedule is. So for the general audience, it's like an episode a week. But for the extra stuff, we are putting it behind our Patreon, which you can access by um, visiting our website, mommywarmuslim.com. And for a cup of coffee, you can access those. And I'm really excited about potentially doing a book club because I feel like, you know, one of the greatest things that came out of Nashville, besides hanging out one night with millionaires and learning all this tech and like, um, updates in the podcasting industry was um, getting turned on to the Devabad trilogy, which you did for me. Mm. And I'm like, I'm already on the third book. Like I'm a, a I know. I started so it one week excited. ago. Yeah. It's such a fun book. And we love talking about books with both bibliophiles and a lot of our audience members are, which is why we always include our book recommendations or what we're reading that week in the show notes. So um, I just think it's a good opportunity to connect with you guys on a whole nother level. I know for the moms with littles, you're like, read overachievers. No, I promise the first four years, nobody does. But then after that, when you start becoming a human again and start, you know, reaching out again to remember the things that you loved, you remember how much you liked reading, writing, working out, whatever it was that you did. For us, it was books um, that we had to give up for a really long time. And now we're like, I think I'm at 50 books this year. Yeah. And you can do audible. I do audible as well. So it's, you know, when, when I, when I'm not listening to podcasts, I am listening to audiobooks, whether they're nonfiction or fiction. And when you're doing those mundane tasks, like folding laundry, going to carpool, cause you know, back to school's coming up and all that good stuff, you know, it really helps to be able to hear and listen to that. And you're learning and growing and doing other things at the same time. And my, our hope says you guys are listening to our podcast while you're doing those types of things. So I definitely um, am excited about this and there's going to be more um, information on that in our, our newsletter coming out and we'll be posting it on all our social media pa- platforms. But I am very excited for our soapbox for today because it's definitely something near and dear to my heart as I'm starting to feel the angst. Uzma, would you like to tell us what our soapbox is for today? Yeah, I think it's really cute that you said that you're excited about it. I think you're more dreading it like a lot of parents who have to figure out what they're going to do this school year. So the soapbox today is about COVID and school. So vaccinate your kids. 12 and over, please Um, mask your kids, whether they're vaccinated or not. That's going to be super duper important. Um, As of August 5th of 2021, 4.3 million American children were infected with COVID. 94,000 of those cases, guys. So almost like a quarter of those cases happened this last week. And that's freaking out everybody, the epidemiologists, the doctors. Um, Now that Um, 94,000 has steadily been increasing in July, which if you remember, most of us opened up and went back to normal, quote unquote. Um, 15% of all COVID cases were made up by pediatric cases in the last week, which is a huge jump. Um, That's from single digits last year. So in the past, we're like, oh, kids aren't affected as much by, but remember, we're not... um, 
Well, for adults, we're not noting just cases of infection. We're actually noting cases of hospitalizations now. For kids, it depends state to state what they're reporting. But generally, right now, we know who's infected. We don't necessarily know who's hospitalized. The states who are reporting, the 11 top states with a spike in pediatric infections, are reporting that, you know, 4% or less of their COVID admissions are coming from pediatric cases. So um, that's still really scary because that's more than what we're used to. What I thought was really interesting and maybe helpful for those parents considering sending their kids back to school, I'm just going to drop this into your ear. San Francisco Bay Community, they're called Community Educational Hub Centers. They did a study from November of 2020 to February of 2021. Now, what these hub centers were, were not necessarily schools. Remember, a lot of kids just had to be in virtual school because the cases were so high, schools were shut down. So everybody was virtual schooling. However, for working parents that had to put their kids somewhere, it was at one of these centers. So maybe yours was named Sylvan or Kaplan or whatever is out there. For mine, it was like a sports center where parents were dropping their kids off to um, not just have some social support, but have some supervision while they were working these long hours. So um, these places did not have fancy air filtration systems. They didn't even have 100% masking, but they had 67% masking of students and teachers on campus. They had one case from November to February of teacher-to-teacher transmission of COVID, but otherwise nothing else because on top of the masking, they opened windows, um, there was social distancing, there was lots of hand washing and sanitization of hands um, with hand sanitizer if you couldn't watch. Now remember during that period that they captured it, it was a smaller number of students and teachers but still somewhere over a thousand. So not a bad sample size. Um, And then uh, there wasn't Delta that we knew of at that time. So some things have changed, but what the study shows is that if you layer your safety precautions, then there is a possibility of going back into groups, educational settings, and not having to worry about COVID transmission. Yeah. It was also November to February is not a huge um, study period. However, I think It's really good and reflects what the American Academy of Pediatrics is saying right now is go back to school. It's important. Just mask. And for all the governors out there who are threatening to penalize their school districts by saying, oh, if you mandate masks, we'll take over your funding. Sick and wrong, dude, because I know your kid in private school is masking right now. Shame on you. So that is our soapbox for today. Whether your kids are vaccinated or not please mask, please encourage your child to be the freak on campus who is continuing to social distance, who is continuing to mask, and who is continuing to sanitize his or her hands, no matter what and always. That's our soapbox for today. Yeah, don't be dirty. Wash your hands. Like, I don't understand that. It's like, just wash your freaking hands and we're going to be just... Um, wear your mask, wear your mask, you know, and these are the type of things that we're going to be um, talking about uh, at our back to school webinar on August 20th. um, Because there are a lot of moms that are a little bit worried about how we're going to do this, how we're going to handle this, you know, easing the transition of being back in school with your children. I know I'm definitely having to do that as my kids are going back for the first time in 18 months. So in me easing my stress, um, I'm hoping to ease yours. So please make sure you put that on your calendar. 
Um, and this was kind of give you a little bit of an insight of what we're planning to offer on our membership page, which is our Patreon. So just keep an eye out. And we are so excited about that for you all. So, so far we have met some amazing boss moms in journalism. And today is absolutely no different. Ruweda Abdulaziz is a national reporter on civil rights, immigration, and social justice issues. You know how we love that right now. Um, and, you know, she gets to do that all day. Ozma gets to do it for five minutes because that's all I let her do. But guess what? Ruweda gets to do this all day. She is a reporter at the Huffington Post covering... Islamophobia and Middle East issues. She knows the impact of journalism, especially bad journalism, on marginalized communities because we've all been there and listened and heard that. If you didn't listen to our first episode this August, where Uzma and I discussed different headlines that really hurt us, go back and download it or watch it on YouTube. You know, my kids were really into this YouTube thing, so let's let's go ahead and do that and give our YouTube some love. Let's talk about um, Rueda right now, who has won multiple print and digital journalism awards. She's also mentors aspiring journalists um, through the Islamic Scholarship Fund. And you know we love the ISF here at Mami Wal Muslim. We are so excited to have you here today. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you, thank you. How are you all doing? We are good. Looking forward to the weekend. Yeah, so happy to be here. Excited to chat about what do I do? <laughs> yes, exactly. Because um, you're usually talking, you're on the other side, usually talking to other people about, you know, pressing issues and such and so forth. So I love that we're getting your side of the story because who actually asked the reporter to report. But we kick off uh, typically by asking folks to um, tell us a little bit about their momming story. But if they don't have kids, we want to know how, you know, what your relationship with your mother looked like and how that informs your work now. Oh, I love that as an opening question. That's so different. And so, no, I do not have kids, um, but I am more than happy to talk about my mama. Uh, My mama is absolutely my role model. She is a resilient woman. She immigrated from Egypt to the States in the early 90s, um, shortly after she got married and gave birth to four uh, incredible kids, uh, me being the eldest, and then I have three younger siblings, um, where she currently lives in Jersey. And so Mama, for me, has always been someone that has given me unconditional love. And so I think what's incredible about having an immigrant mother is that even though she may not under not understand the technicalities of what I do, um, didn't really understand journalism, generally speaking, when I first told her, hey, this is what I wanted to do for my career, she did understand this concept that I was passionate about something, that I was passionate about my community, and that I wanted to seek change one way or another. Of course came the fears and the doubts and the concerns, right? Uh, she asked a lot of questions. She asked a lot of people a lot of questions. Maybe not me, but you know, she went around first. Um, but she did what she needed to do in order to best express her love for me and her support. Um, and sometimes it, it comes in, in the funniest ways, like uh, commenting on everything that I've written online. And I'm just like, Mama, you don't have to do it. She's like, I need to defend you against John 001306 <laughs> and let him know that you're like my daughter. And I was just like, I'd rather you not, right? Awesome. But I think it's incredible. Um, and I think it just it speaks to her support and her love. And whenever things get tough in my field, which happens often, I think about the challenges that she has 
has gone through um, as an immigrant, as a woman, as a hijabi. And uh, she gives me the, the encouragement and the courage that I need, I think, to keep going. So I'm very, very grateful for her, alhamdulillah. Thank you, Omroweda. That is so awesome. You know, I love that you said she had a lot of questions and she asked like all her friends because <laughs> that's like every mom, is your kid doing that too? Like, what does that mean? Like, she's saying that, is she lying to me? <laughs> you know? Yeah, exactly. Like, how do we do this together? How do we team up to get her to go back to the med school that's idea? True. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. Oh, I love <laughs> it. I love it. And I'm glad you stuck to your writing guns because not all of us were able to do that. That's amazing. So you alluded to um, the immigrant history of your family and your mom in particular. Can you tell us a little bit, whatever your comfortable um, sharing with us about your family background and then how um, you kind of give us a snippet about how you got into journalism but maybe what exactly maybe more specifically what that path looked like for you Let's start with your family. Sure, absolutely. Yeah, sounds like a great plan. So both of my parents um, are from Egypt. They're born and raised, went to school there. They met and married in Egypt, and then they came in the early 90s, like I mentioned. And they immigrated over to New Jersey, uh, where my father actually had some family here, so there was some familiarity. Um, and I think, you know, the East Coast is very popular. It's usually the first pit stop for a lot of our immigrants, right? And we, we make home here, realize it's really crowded, really expensive, and sometimes continue on westward. My parents... Uh, ended up sticking here um, and that's where I was born and raised my siblings and I were all born and ra- born and raised in Jersey we grew up we went to the public schools here I went to university here um, and it was you know growing up as a kid I was pretty nerdy I loved my books I loved my writing I loved going to the library maxing out the books that I could check out at once um, and then bringing them all back and doing it all over again and and, and my mom loved it for me she, you know she saw it as a safe space an educational space and so she always encouraged it constantly um, my brother eventually went off into sports but my sisters and I continued on the on the reading habit we're three girls and one boy and it wasn't until high school where I actually saw a local ad in our local newspaper um, that the newspaper was opening a teen scene section that's what they had called it at the time and essentially it was like an internship before internships were a thing we got paid in pizza right that was that was it and that was good enough for a 12 year old, a 13 year old at the time. And we met once a week and we learned the basics of how a newspaper gets put together, right? We learned about what a byline was. We learned about writing a headline. How do you take good photos? And I enjoyed it so much. I loved every part of it. I mean, it was so exciting and thrilling to me, but I think the most exciting part was waiting for Sundays to come around begging my mom for a quarter, running outside in my pajamas and in my flip-flops to the little newspaper box that barely exists. I don't think I even seen them on the corners anymore. Putting in my quarter and grabbing the paper. It was called the Home News Tribune at the time. And I would run back home on my dining room table, just sprawl out the paper and pass through all the most important stuff. The news, yeah. the sports, the business, the real estate, right? Crime. Because where else are <laughs> all of it? Because where else are they going to put the teen scene section? But at the very end of the paper (laughs) which made sense and I would go there and I would search and search until I found my name and I remember finding my first byline that it was so long that a way that Aziz had to take three bylines because I couldn't fit into (laughs) one right they had to cut it into like three lines but like that that didn't bother me it was just so exciting to see my name um, on this newspaper so I would cut them out and I would put them on a fridge and I would um, save them in a newspaper which I still have actually found in my parents garage not too long ago and I think that feeling I've tried to hold on for the rest of my career because that's what triggered something in me that 
like this could be a job, right? People do this for a living. And um, I do have to give credit. There was also a Muslim staffer at the time, this uh, Desi uncle, who I remember when I saw him. (laughs) Oh, is it Desi uncle? And when I saw him, my eyes just went, connection, like we can relate, like, hey. And I was just like, if he can do it and he's here, then I, I can do this too. And I took his contact because I, I just saw a Muslim name um, and a Desi uncle and he became my first like unofficial mentor and answered all of my questions. And I'm so grateful for him. He recently passed the light hummel uh, a couple of years ago, but I am truly indebted to him. And that experience that just opened this piece of my mind that said journalism. And I didn't know it was journalism, but that's when I knew that this, this could be a possibility. I love that story. I love that. And it sounds like um, maybe he was one of those people that helped you kind of put you on that way to mentorship as well, right? Because it sounds like you do a lot of the mentorship for other journalists and um, you're kind of paying it forward, which is the beauty of being able to do that and provide, you know, the more people we can get in the news and mainstreaming, the better I think it's going to be in there for for everybody. So let's let's pray for this. this, They see uncle that kind of had your back um, at a time where, you know, you were probably one of the the two people at this particular newspaper doing what you guys do together. And the one thing is, uh, you know, print media is something that is, like you said, we don't see those newspaper boxes anymore. We don't see this. Where do you see that heading? Um, And do you think it takes away from the experience of holding that paper copy of the newspaper? You were looking for the teen scene. I was looking for the comics, like that that (laughs) physical paper of, uh, you know, of of looking at it and and learning and growing from there. How do you feel about this transition to more of an electronic um, platform for news media and print media, which is something that you are um, an expert in? Yeah, it's a great question. I mean, look, media is changing, even when we're talking about the word media, right? It can encompass so many things. And I think that's the reality of the dynamics of technology, of the internet, of social media. And so, I mean, I'm always going to be biased. I love holding things in my hands, right? Whether it's a newspaper or a book. Um, I just, I love the physical copy. I get it messy, I rip them, it's in my purse, it has coffee stains, it has jam stains, (laughs) but you know what? It's just part of the experience. But that doesn't mean it's not any less important, whether we're reading and consuming news online or we're doing it over the paper. And it doesn't mean we need to have less media literacy. In fact, we need to have more media literacy because if it's not in a paper and it's on the internet, that means it's there's a lot more likelihood for disinformation and misinformation, right? We see this now with the pandemic. We see this with international news. We see this with anything. The smallest uh, bits of information can be convoluted in the most complicated and sometimes nastiest of ways. And so I think even though the dynamic is changing, it's not necessarily a bad thing. What is a bad thing is the instability of journalism, generally speaking, whether it's newspaper, print journalism, or audio, there's a lack of public funding, there's a lack of support. Uh, the way that social media and silicon you know, tech, uh, like Facebook and Google, and the way algorithms work, um, just makes it really complicated and really hard to monetize and, and find authentic support. So there are definitely a lot of challenges, and I think uh, you know, journalism needs to be invested in. I think we just don't. I think we forget about the importance of news. We think we forget about the importance of whether it's local news or or mainstream news, or oftentimes we just think about 
the big news companies, right? The ones that are owned by billionaires. We think about the TV stations, right? We think about maybe the New York Times or the Washington Post, but we don't think about the local news in our own neighborhoods, right? We don't think about the smaller organizations that don't get as much love. We don't think about public radio. All of this is so important. I mean, it's a society at the end of the day. It's a forest, right? All of all of it needs to exist in order for it to thrive. And so I think we need to see more of it. I mean, I work in digital news. It's just one facet of news. Of course, we you know all of our content is published on our our, our website at HuffPost. But the intersection still exists, right? You can have a digital website that also has a TV channel. Um, that kid also has a print newspaper. And so I think the, it really is the more the merrier and the more we can support journalists and our networks, it'll be better for our communities, it'll be better for the world as a whole. But we're not, uh, we're not there yet. And I think it leads to a lot of challenges like just the instability um, of journalism places, whether it's print or online. We've seen places open up and shut down really quickly. Um, we've seen lawsuits by big powerful corporations and politicians who have the power to shut down places because they simply don't like it. And so that's really scary. It's not something we want to see more of. Now, of course, there are a lot of great organizations and there's a lot of great support behind, you know, to, to kind of help us thrive. But, you know, we could always use more of it. That's for sure. Yeah. Well, that answers one of my questions. Like, how do we support our journalists better? And yeah, you know, that doesn't mean go buy a newspaper and then tell all the reporters they can't talk smack about you because, yeah. you know, in our religion... Like, even if we're doing something wrong, our family is obligated to stop us. Like, you know, and that's like your work family. So I, I really love that reminder. Um, so when you're talking about like all of this need for support and all of these changes that are happening in this, what sounds like a very dynamic field now, <clears throat> um, what's like your dream for what journalism in America is going to look like, say, in 10 years? If you could dream about it, what does mm. it look like? Oh man, there's so much. I think what do I where do I want to start? Uh, I mean, look, let's be real. I think journalism is still a pretty homogenous field. It is still run predominantly by white men, and I think the lack of diversity continues to be a problem, right? I mean, it continues to be a problem across different fields and industries no matter what. But I find it to be incredibly important that in journalism, when we're reflecting our communities, right, the most diverse country in the world, and you have the same group of people telling our stories, it's going to be a huge problem. It is a huge problem, right? And we've seen this across the board, and any marginalized community can talk about this, right? But given that, you know, I'm a Muslim reporter, I cover Islamophobia, we're Muslims here, we don't need to be a journalist to understand the coverage, the one-dimensional, the bad coverage of Muslims and how it's impacted our day-to-day -day lives. And that is because at the end of the day, media is a power dynamic, right? We're talking about the capability of telling someone else's story. Now, when you're setting that narrative for them, and for our community, it's that the same decades-old cliches and stereotypes that we've heard about. The men are violent, the women are oppressed, the faith is backwards and more likely prone to violence, right? The things we've heard a million times over. When that's the same talking points over and over again, no wonder you're going to have an increase in hate crimes and violent assaults. No wonder you're going to have 
uh, just the recent study that came out by the ISPU, American Muslims being uh, twice, you know, more likely to, to, to think about suicide, right? Of course, you're going to have workplace discrimination, you're going to have uh, gendered Islamophobia against Muslim women, forget, not even just on a grassroots level, you're going to have policies get put into place. We're talking about surveillance, CBE, we're talking about the travel ban, right? All of that gets put into place because we as a society have normalized these same talking points, the same type of reporting, the same one dimensional coverage of our community. And maybe at one point we thought it was just us, right? We're just like, maybe we're crazy. But then the studies have come out, right? And I think every Muslim has had this moment where we just feel like everything is just so terrible all the time when we're talking about the coverage of Muslims. But studies have continued to prove and shown that this is a factual statistical problem. When we are talking about our communities, and the Muslim community in the US doesn't have a majority race, right? One of the, the, the fun facts that I just live by. And yet the majority of coverage of Muslims tend to be Arabs or South Asians, right? Despite the fact that the first Muslim community here in the US, the oldest Muslim community are black Muslims, the fastest growing Muslim community in the US are Latino Muslims, right? We don't talk enough about Muslim women beyond just what they're wearing. God forbid we have a, a, a headline that doesn't say unveil in it, right? Or shatter yeah. stereotypes, the two things that irks me the most. We're still in this box. And I think I would love to see just more journalists of color, more brave, bolder reporting that is just complicated and nuanced and messy because that's what a community is. It's complicated and nuanced and messy and beautiful because we're humans, but our coverage doesn't reflect that right now. And there is a lot of stride to change it. There are a lot of incredible journalists who are working really hard to change it for all marginalized groups. But I would say if I had to pick one thing that I really want to be better in 10 years, I think that's the one I'm going to choose. I love that. I'm like, all the snaps right now. <laughs> Especially because when you you want somebody that can tell your story that understands what your story actually is, right? Like that is the biggest thing of being able to have a seat at the table, having that representation, um, doing all the things that we're all doing in our own small ways to make sure that we become more quote unquote mainstream because the reality, like you said, Roweda, is that we're all here and we've been here for a long time. So why not start seeing your face on the TV screen, having your names be put in print where people can actually, what do they say? Say my name, understand what my, where my name comes in, where, what the cultural significance is around it. And by the way, I will correct you every single time you say, uh, say it wrong. So I, I love that you're doing that. But one of the things that, <coughs> excuse me, as a mother, I'm a little bit concerned about when I do have like I was talking to my niece and she's thinking about going into journalism and she's super excited about seeing this particular um, segment that we're going to be having because she she really loves you but like can visibly Muslim people expect to get into the, those more non-fluff pieces or non-unveiling pieces like more into that investigative journalism um, where you know it's it's not these, like you said, I'm gonna go behind the scenes and do these, you know, unveiling, but more of like, this is what's going on. This is how we're doing it. And and talking about things that people are actually interested in because that 
the reality is you can't necessarily go undercover, quote unquote, because you are visibly Muslim. So what what are your thoughts on that? And what kind of advice can you give um, to those young aspiring Muslim women that want to go into journalism right now? That's a great question. And, you know, my advice would be that if you put your heart and mind to it, you absolutely can do it, right? As a, a visible Muslim woman, as a hijabi Muslim woman who does investigative work, you know, I'm here, and you know, and so long as I'm here, I'm going to do my part to make sure that there are others that can join me, right? And I think that's a lot of the mentality that a lot of us have. And so uh, investigative journalism, you know, is changing. I think a lot of times when we think of investigative journalism, we think of perhaps TV and film and you're putting on a dark trench coat with a coffee and a cigarette and you're hiding somewhere. Um, I don't think that tends to be the case as much. I mean, being a good journalist means having good sources, right? Knowing where to find a good school, a good story, knowing how to find a good scoop, having good investigative skills. And a lot of that is training, sure. And a lot of that's just a good gut feeling, knowing when you've landed on a, an incredible investigative story. And sometimes it takes a long time. You know, I'm working on a year long investigation now. I'm hoping to have it published in January, inshallah. A lot of my investigations sometimes uh, take a few months. Sometimes they're a lot; bit, they're a bit shorter. But as so long as you have those foundations, you absolutely can succeed in investigative journalism. I mean, at that point, you want your skill sets to shine, and everything else is going to follow through. Being a part of a particular community, coming from a particular marginalized community, isn't going to be a setback, right? Unless you want it to be. And of course, there are going to be challenges. I mean, let's be real, as a hijabi, as a visible Muslim woman, I have plenty of those, right? Just walking into a newsroom, it's a walking statement of what I believe in and who I am, or going to meet a source for the first time, right? And I have to make peace with that. I have to make peace with the fact that one time I didn't, uh, I couldn't go on to an interview with Mina, a colleague of mine, um, because this particular person that we were interviewing had some Islamophobic views. Now, did I not go because I was afraid? Not particularly, but I didn't go because I wanted him to speak his truth. Because at the end of the day, that material that we were going to get it was going to go in a story that was still going to have my byline in it, that I'm going to hold on to, to the integrity of this field and of the profession and still hold true to my values and my faith because that's my choice. I mean, at the end of the day, you don't even have to go into investigative journalism. I think you don't even have to cover Islamophobia. I just happen to be a Muslim covering Muslim issues, right? But we need more Muslim journalism journalists covering m beyond just politics, beyond just investigations. We need folks covering entertainment and culture. We need folks covering sports. We need folks doing the national news. We need folks to being foreign correspondents because true diversity isn't just checking off a box saying, okay, we have one black reporter, one Muslim reporter, and then pigeonholing them when they don't want to. You know, I have, I know folks who are, they're managers, editorial managers who do copy editing, who do social media managing, who do a po podcast recording, do audio, they do video. And that's the true definition of diversity is being able to have those choices to go into any of these roles as a Muslim and not have to worry about 
being put in this box or being told that you can or cannot cover a particular topic because of who you are, right? And we've seen this happen. We've seen criticism uh, where black reporters told that they couldn't cover like the Black Lives Matter movement or protests because they happen to be black. I have um, critics who say I can't be objective when covering my own community because I'm part of that community. And, you know, I happen to disagree. I think part, being part of the community gives me leverage. I think it helps me earn the trust of, of the community that's been traumatized by the media for so long. That one time I had a reporter going to Amesha to cover a story who called me outside of the mosque and was just like, I need the 411, right? And I don't blame him. But I told yeah. him, I was just like, I hope you have clean socks. You will be taking off your shoes, right? Like people <laughs> of the opposite gender may, may or may not like, uh, you know, shake your hand. That's not necessarily something to be offended of. Um, you're going to have a separate entrance. But if I was there, I, I don't need to start at step one. I'm already mm-hmm. at step seven, right? And so I'm more likely to get more of that color in those details in that investigation we were mentioning earlier. So that's how I see it. And I truly do believe it. And there are naysayers who are not going to believe it. I think most importantly, being in this field, especially if you're coming from a marginalized community, especially if you're going to be a Muslim woman, you gotta have thick skin because the naysayers are truly everywhere. Does it mean it's impossible? Absolutely not. I love that. That is, that's absolutely correct. Like you're starting at step seven. Um, And it's not like somebody who's outside of the community has been objective. We've seen that. We've seen how that's not worked. So let's try it the opposite way and see what we can potentially do better. And if we can't, then hey, it's an opportunity to learn something new and try something different. So I I love the answer to that. Now I do have, I think more of a personal question because we forgot to um, ask you this earlier. I have written to HuffPost so many times like, hey, can I like be a guest contributor? (laughs) Like nothing. And this is like back in the days when like um, Ariana was still there. So you know, everybody like wants to have HuffPost on their like, you know, um, their street cred and you've got it. So tell us what that looked like and how like now you are a reporter for HuffPost. Sure, absolutely. I mean, there's so many different entryways to journalism. And I think that's the coolest thing. You don't have to have to have studied journalism to to go into journalism. And it doesn't have to be a full-time job, right? So for me, it's my full-time career. I'm employed full-time by HuffPost. I'm a reporter for them. I've been for several years now. Um, and it's been an absolute blessing. Some people don't want to go into full-time journalism, but they want to be a guest contributor. They want to write every so often, right? And so this can take so many shapes and forms. It could be a columnist, it could be an op-ed writer, you could be a freelance reporter where sometimes you take on stories, right? And you get paid based off of the organization that's hired you to write about a particular topic for a particular deadline. And so I think we forget that there are so many ways to access how to become a writer and how to get published. Um, So for me, in the traditional sense, I did study journalism um, when I was in university. I got a degree in journalism. Um, And one thing that I did, I think that was incredibly helpful is that during my time in school, I got tons of internships, right? Because I knew breaking into the journalism field was going to be challenging. I mean, is still challenging. There's a lot of gatekeeping, unfortunately. And so I took every, I had dedicated, I had made this plan. Maybe it was a little bit of overkill, but after my first, a semester, I had an internship every single semester for the rest of the four years of, of college because I was like, if experience is what they want, experience is what I'm going to get, right? And it was a challenging, in addition to being a full-time student, I also had a job um, that was paying for my tuition. And so 
I didn't sleep much, but you know, for a 20 something year old, it worked out. It was okay. I think my diet was 80% caffeine, probably wasn't the greatest. Um, and then 20% pizza, but you know what? It's okay. <laughs> but alhamdulillah, I had made it through and it paid off. I had made so many connections with an incredible group of people. I had learned so much about what I liked and what I didn't like. Um, I didn't know I wanted to go into digital, so I got to do some audio work, I got to do some video work, I got to do some social media work, I got to do some reporting, uh, and all that helped me when um, I was applying for jobs and um, I started working at HuffPost specifically for in 2015. Um, so I've been there for quite some time now and I've had different roles while I was there. I got to do the World News Desk and cover foreign affairs. I got to be on our social media team and I actually was working on the analytics for some time. I was heading up our Facebook, our Instagram pages, which have millions of followers. Got to see what placements work best where, how do you craft a great tweet? How do you pick the picture perfect picture for Instagram, which is totally different from reporting. Um, and then in 2016, I changed over to our enterprise um, investigative desk, um, which I'm still at now. And that's what I've been uh, working on since. I'm, I'm going to need um, some tips on the Instagram poses because I just freeze. <laughs> Same. <laughs> and I don't know how to do that like I have not been but we're gonna to have to do that on, on a different day but you know one That's of the things that I'm always interested um, about is like what is one of the favorite stories that either you covered and maybe it was something that you just felt the most passionate about or it's still something you're thinking about years later what does that look like for you and can you share a little bit about that with our audience Yes, I've, I've read, the story just pops straight in my head when, when you ask the question. My absolute favorite story that I got to work on was a story about what it was like swimming as a Muslim woman in America. And I love doing this feature story because it was very different from what I normally do. A lot of times I'm doing more of like the politics heavy, the hate crimes, what's happening in DC. So this was a little bit of a break from that. But it also had the perfect intersection of so many other things that I was interested in, right? And so the story follows, you know, Muslim women, uh, the majority of whom happened to be hijabi, but not all, who chose to dress modestly while they went swimming. Whether that was at a local beach, a water park, their pool, literally could be anywhere. And I had spoken to dozens of dozens of women across the country, moms, young girls, elderly women, just talking about what they choose to that, what they wanted to wear. Um, and why they chose it. And the story was just so much fun and so insightful because it intersected with Black America and the history in the US about segregating at pools and beaches. It also intersected with the fashion industry and how there's a rise in modest swimwear. It intersected with politics. This was also during the beginning era of Trump and how a lot of women were being harassed and assaulted and policed um, at a lot of these places and talking about cops called on women at the YMCA, people just making um, comments at the local pools, mentioning Trump, some not mentioning Trump. And then a lot of it had to just do with finding that perfect swimsuit that made a Muslim woman just feel good, right? Let's be real, my first burkini was ugly, right? They were I'm ugly. talking, they were ugly. Mine was black, I believe, with neon flowers on them. Oh, like yeah. Green. 
Um, the pants were just ill-fitting. It came with a swim cap that I hated because it gave me headaches. So I just like wear an old hijab. And before that, you just wore like a t-shirt and leggings, right? Like there wasn't really an industry unless you knew someone who was going abroad and you're just like, can you please like bring me one and like, could it please not be ugly, right? And so now that's totally different. You have American companies here in the US, right? Who are making this. Some who are Muslim owned and some who are not Muslim owned because they happen to be one organization that I interviewed. They just made SPF friendly clothing, but they mm -hmm. saw such an uptick from Muslim buyers that they ended up making a Muslim line, right? Dedicated for Muslim women. And so we talked about accessibility to different body shapes and sizes in addition to colors and patterns. And so this one feature just encapsulated so much of like the big topics, whether it was social justice, whether it was, uh, you know, uh, the history of the US, talking about racism, talking about gender Islamophobia, talking about fashion. And um, it was so much fun. It was so, so much fun. And I think it also just resonated. When you read a piece and you're like, wow, I like this gets me like I feel this like I can see my 13 14 year old self or my current self in this story that's when you know you got a good story and I the feedback that I had received was immense but it was one that I related on a personal level because like I, I struggled swimming here too right like I, I still struggle trying to find the, the perfect outfit it's still a little bit of a social anxiety going to any beach as a hijabi <laughs> or someone who wants to dress modestly and so um, I love that story the photos we hired uh, I, I was a Muslim woman that I wrote the story. My characters were all majority Muslim women. The photographer that I hired uh, was a Muslim woman. And so it was just a beautiful piece put together by Muslim women for Muslim women um, that I believe came out to be just a, a stunning package. So I'm really, really proud of it. No, you should be. I remember we loved that piece. You interviewed a couple of our friends too, and we're like, oh my God, like she's so fun in the pool and looks so cute over there. Yeah. And then, you know, in reference to the early Burkini Zeba, they um, used to not have the little attachments. So yeah. Now so then your shirt would float up. So your shirt would float. It used to float up because then they figured out, they're oh, she's a hijab. You just don't want like her shirt around her shoulders when she's in the water swim underwater they can see all the goods so yeah once they figured that stuff out that was, that was really awesome they've come a long way um you know but because of our own body dysmorphia our body image issues we're like oh we don't look right in this one and so that's that's like a whole other issue outside of burkinis is women and body image and where that's coming from from the media but thank you for sharing that and definitely thank you for writing that article because you know i think my husband We'll show that, that in our show notes too, right, Osama? Because I, I believe that that needs to be kind of pulled back up because, you know, as people like myself, I, I didn't even bother learning how to swim. My kids are great yeah. swimmers because we were also kind of like, if you can't dress, I'm not, cares, what, yeah. what do you do? There's, there's no point. And now that it's, you know, getting hotter and hotter every summer, I might have to learn how to swim and I'll have to start looking for some burkinis or some, you know, American-made, Islamic-friendly swimsuits. So thank you so much for doing that, and I look forward to, to reading that again. But you know, we end our we end our podcast every single time to kind of get to know you. You're so used to asking the questions. Now it's me coming at you in a rapid fire segment, and I'm going to be asking you as many questions as I can in one minute. And are you ready to throw it out? 
Oh man, I am ready. I think Joe put up the timer and we're gonna get started right now. When you're not working, how do you like to spend your time? I like to eat, I oh, like yeah. to sleep. <laughs> and when I am in the right mindset, I try to go out for uh, runs as much as possible and spend time with family. I love that. What was your first job? It sounds like it was always something to do news related, but you know, it seems like at 13, you were still working in the newspaper. So was that your first job? <laughs> My first job, actually, I was a tutor. Um, I was teaching math and reading to kindergartners at Kumon. Oh, at the time. I, like, oh, I remember that. Kumon's still there. Kumon's still there. But you know, a Mommy Well Muslim is going to be starting a book club. So we're hoping you're going to be joining us soon. But what is your favorite book? Oh, I think, oh, that's so hard. I think I'm just going to pick a recent favorite. I think it's Homegoing uh, by Yad Yassi. I love that book. Oh my gosh, we're gonna add just one more question. If you had to eat one thing for the rest of your life, what is it gonna be? Oh my God, stuffed grape leaves. I will be happy, I will die happy. That's it, that's the one thing I wanna eat forever. Oh my gosh, (laughs) now you're making me hungry. But thank you so much for participating. I hope it wasn't too scary for you. And you know, we're gonna be reading some of your new pieces and uh, try to get onto HuffPost because you know, we have the Muslim mom perspective down. So if you ever need somebody, (laughs) let us know, we're here for you. Obviously, I know we can exactly talk like to where to go. I love <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. It was such a pleasure. Definitely weird being on the other side of questions, but you guys made it very enjoyable. Oh, thank you. We're glad. I mean, that means a lot coming from you. So we're going to link up uh, that article and then even include one of the articles that you did on Muslims in swing states last year, which is mm-hmm. how we first started talking. So we really appreciated your coverage during that entire very... tribulating season but it was fun and we survived and we'll have some links for people to um you know maybe send you some stories so if they start doing that and a whole bunch of muslim moms start start emailing you like ideas we are really happy but we apologize if it's annoying but you know we got stories (laughs) (laughs) and you're out there i'm excited to get it yeah. I'm excited to get them all. I will let you all know once my email gets flooded. <laughs> okay, awesome. Sounds good. Thanks so much and have a really safe and wonderful weekend. Thanks again for joining Zeba and Uzman Momming While Muslim today. Please email us your thoughts or questions and follow us on Facebook and Instagram because this podcast was designed to cater your needs. Make sure you check out the show notes to find the links and resources for this episode. And remember to help a mama out and leave a review of the show as well as to like it on your podcast app of choice because that helps us grow. Tune in next week for another episode of Mommy While Muslim. Assalamu alaikum, everyone.